0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 23 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Anne of Bohemia, Part 2. A civil war commenced which terminated in the defeat of the royal troops at Radcot Bridge, near Oxford, by the Duke of Gloucester and young Henry of Bolingbroke. It was the queen's mediation alone that could induce Richard to receive the Archbishop of Canterbury, when he came to propose an amnesty between the king and his subjects. Two days and nights did Richard remain inflexible, till at last, by the persuasion of Anne, the Archbishop was admitted to the royal presence. Many plans, says Froissart, were proposed to the king. At last, by the good advice of the queen, he restrained his collar, and agreed to accompany the Archbishop to London. After the Queen returned to London from Bristol, the proceedings of that Parliament commenced, which has been justly termed by history the Merciless. The Queen's servants were principal objects of its vengeance, the tendency to Loyalardism in her household being probably the secret motive. It was in vain that the Queen of England humbled herself to the very dust, in hopes of saving her faithful friends. King richard in an especial in manner instanced the undutifulness of the earl of arundel to the queen who he declared was three hours on her knees before this earl pleading with tears for the life of john calverley one of her esquires all the answer she could get was this pray for yourself and your husband for that is the best thing you can do and let this request alone and all the importunities used could not save Calverley's life. Indeed, the Duke of Gloucester and his colleagues established a reign of terror, making it penal for anyone to testify fidelity to the king or queen, or to receive their confidence. The Duke of Ireland fled to the Low Countries, from whence he never returned during his life. It is worthy to remark that the niece of his ill-treated wife, for whose divorce Anne of Bohemia had intrigued with Pope Urban, married the great and powerful emperor Sigismund, own brother to that queen. The intermediate time, from the autumn of 1387 to the spring of 1389, was spent by the young king and queen in a species of restraint. Eltham and Sheen were the favorite residences of Richard and Anne, and in these palaces they chiefly sojourned at this time. The favorite summer palace of Anne was named, from the lovely landscape around it, Sheen, Tradition says that Edward the Confessor, delighting in the fair scenery, called it by that expansive Saxon word, signifying everything that is bright and beauteous. The king had, during this interval, attained his 22nd year, and his first question, on the meeting of his parliament, was, how old he was? And when they named the years he had attained, he declared that his ancestors were always considered of age much earlier, and that the meanest of his subjects were of age at twenty-one. He therefore determined to shake off the fetters that controlled him. This scene was followed by a sort of re-coronation at St. Stephen's Chapel, where the nobility renewed their oaths to him, and it was particularly observed that he kissed those with affection whom he considered as his adherents, and scowled at those who had been the leaders of the late insurrections. The king always appeared to have been exceedingly attached to his uncle, the Duke of Lancaster, but he had a strong wish to rid himself of his turbulent and popular cousin, Henry, the eldest son of that duke, who was born the same year as himself, and from infancy, was his rival. On one occasion, Henry had threatened the life of the king in the presence of the queen. Thrice have I saved his life, exclaimed King Richard. Once my dear uncle Lancaster, on whom God have mercy, would have slain him for his treason and villainy. And then, O God of Paradise, all night did I ride to preserve him from death. Once also he drew his sword on me, in the chamber of Queen Anne. King Richard soon after bestowed on the Duke of Lancaster the sovereignty of Aquitaine, probably with the design of keeping the son of that prince at a distance from England. The queen held a grand festival on this occasion. Part of the high ceremonial consisted in the queen's presentation of the Duchess of Lancaster, with the gold circlet she was to wear as Duchess of Aquitaine, while Richard invested his uncle with the ducal coronet. But the investiture was useless, for the people of Aquitaine refused to be separated from the Dominion of England. The king's full assumption of the royal authority was celebrated with a splendid tournament, over which Queen Anne presided, as the sovereign lady, to bestow the prize, a rich jeweled clasp, to the best tenant of the lists, and a rich crown of gold to the best of the opponents. Sixty of her ladies, mounted on beautiful palfreys, each led a knight, by a silver chain, to the tilting ground at Smithfield, through the streets of London, by the sound of trumpets, attended by numerous minstrels. In this order they passed before Queen Anne, who was already arrived with her ladies, and placed in open chambers, richly decorated. The Queen retired, at dusk, to the Bishop of London's palace at St. Paul's, where she held a grand banquet, with dancing both before and after supper. During the whole of the tournament, the Queen lodged at the palace of the Bishop of London. The Queen's good offices as a mediator were required in the year 1392 to compose a serious difference between Richard II and the City of London. Richard had asked a loan of a thousand pounds from the citizens, which they peremptorily refused. An Italian merchant offered the King the sum required, upon which the citizens raised a tumult and tore the unfortunate loan lender to pieces. This outrage being followed by a riot, attended with bloodshed, Richard declared that as the city did not keep his peace, he should resume her charters, and actually remove the courts of law to York. In distress, the city applied to Queen Anne to mediate for them. Fortunately, Richard had no other favorite at that time than his peace-loving queen, who was, says the ancient historians, very precious to the nation, being continually doing some good to the people, and she deserved a much larger dower than the sum settled on her, which only amounted to four thousand five hundred pounds per annum. The manner in which Queen Anne pacified Richard is preserved in a Latin chronicle poem, written by Richard May Destin, an eyewitness of the scene. He was a priest attached to the court, and in favor with Richard and the Queen." Through the private intercession of the Queen, the King consented to pass through the city, on his way from Sheen to Westminster Palace, on the 29th of August. When they arrived at Southwark, the Queen assumed her crown, which she wore during the whole procession through London. It was blazing with various gems of the choicest kinds. Her dress was likewise studded with precious stones, and she wore a rich carcanet about her neck, she appeared, according to the taste of May Dustin, fairest among the fair, and from the benign humility of her gracious countenance, the anxious citizens gathered hopes that she would succeed in pacifying the king. During the entry of the royal pair into the city, they rode at some distance from each other. At the first bridge tower, the king and queen were met by the lord mayor and other authorities, followed by a vast concourse of men, women, and children, every artificer bearing some symbol of his craft. Before the Southwark bridge gate, the king was presented with a pair of fair white steeds, trapped with gold cloth, figured with red and white, and hung full of silver bells. Steeds such as Caesar might have been pleased to yoke to his car. Queen Anne then arrived with her train, when the Lord Mayor Venner presented her with a small white palfrey, exquisitely trained, for her own riding the Lord Mayor commenced a long speech with these words, O generous offspring of imperial blood, whom God hath destined worthily to sway the scepter as consort of our king. He then proceeds to hint that mercy and not rigor best become the queenly station, and that gentle ladies had great influence with their loving lords. Then entering into the merits of the palfrey, he commended its beauty, its docility, and the convenience of its ambling paces, and the magnificence of its purple housings. After the animal had been graciously accepted by the queen, she passed over the bridge and came to the bridge portal on the city side. But some of her maids of honor, who were following her in two wagons or chariots, were not quite so fortunate in their progress over the bridge. Old London Bridge was, in the 14th century and for some ages after, no such easy defile for a large influx of people to pass through, though not then encroached upon by houses and shops. It was encumbered by fortifications and barricades, which guarded the drawbridge towers in the center and the bridge gate towers at each end. In this instance, the multitudes pouring out of the city, to get a view of the queen and her train, meeting the crowds following the royal procession. The throngs pressed on each other so tumultuously, that one of the chariots containing the queen's ladies was overturned. Lady rolled upon lady, all being sadly discomposed in the upset. And, what was worse, nothing could restrain the laughter of the rude plebeian artificers. At last, the equipage was righted, the discomfited damsels replaced, and their charrette resumed its place in the procession. But such a reverse of horn caps did not happen without serious inconveniences to the wearers, as may Destin very minutely particularizes. As the king and queen passed through the city, the principal thoroughfares were hung with gold cloth and silver tissue, and tapestry of silk and gold. When they approached the conduit at Cheapside, Red and white wine played from the spouts of a tower erected against it. The royal pair were served, with rosy wine smiling in golden cups, and an angel flew down in a cloud, and presented to the king, and then to the queen, rich gold circlets worth several hundred pounds. Another conduit of wine played at St. Paul's eastern gate, where was stationed a band of antique musical instruments, whose names alone will astound modern musical ears. There were persons playing on timpanis, monochords, cymbals, psalteries and lyres, zambucas, citherns, citulas, horns and viols. Our learned Latinist dwells with much unction on the symphonous chorus produced by these instruments, which, he says, wrapped all hearers in a kind of stupor. No wonder. At the monastery of St. Paul's, the king and queen alighted from their steeds, and passed through the cathedral on foot, in order to pay their offerings at the holy sepulchre of St. Erkenwald. At the western gate, they remounted their horses, and proceeded to the Ludgate. There, just above the river bridge, which river, we beg to remind our readers, was that delicious stream, now called Fleet Ditch, was perched, a celestial band of spirits, who saluted the royal personages, as they passed the fleet bridge, with enchanting singing, and sweet psalmody, making withal, a pleasant fume by swinging incense pots. They likewise scattered fragrant flowers on the king and queen, as they severally passed the bridge. And if the odors of that civic stream, the fleet at that time, by any means rivaled those which pertain to it at present, Everyone must own that a fumigation was appointed there with great judgment. At the temple barrier, above the gate, was the representation of a desert, inhabited by all manner of animals, mixed with reptiles and monstrous worms, or, at least, by their resemblances. In the background was a forest. Amidst the concourse of beasts was seated the Holy Baptist John, pointing his finger at an angus day. After the king had halted to view this scene, his attention was struck by the figure of St. John, for whom he had a peculiar devotion, when an angel descended from above the wilderness, bearing in his arms a splendid gift, which was a tablet, studded with gems, fit for any altar, with the crucifixion embossed thereon. The king took it in his hand and said, Peace to this city, for the sake of Christ, his mother, and my patron St. John. I forgive every offense. Then the king continued his progress towards his palace, and the queen arrived opposite to the desert and St. John, when Lord Mayor Venner presented her with another tablet, likewise representing the crucifixion. He commenced his speech with these words, Illustrious daughter of imperial parents, Anne, a name in Hebrew signifying grace, and which was born by her who was the mother of the mother of Christ. Mindful of your race and name, intercede for us to the king, and, as often as you see this tablet, think of our city, and speak in our favor. Upon which the queen graciously accepted the dutiful offering of the city, saying, with the emphatic brevity of a good wife who knew her influence, leave all to me. By this time the king had arrived at his palace of Westminster, the great hall of which was ornamented with hangings more splendid than the pen can describe. Richard's throne was prepared upon the king's bench, which royal tribunal he ascended, scepter in hand, and sat in great majesty, when the queen and the rest of the procession entered the hall. The queen was followed by her maiden train, When she approached the king, she knelt down at his feet, and so did all her ladies. The king hastened to raise her, asking, What would Anna declare, and your requests shall be granted? The queen's answer is perhaps a fair specimen of the way in which she obtained her empire over the weak but affectionate mind of Richard. More honeyed words than the following, female blanishment, could scarcely devise. Sweet, she replied, my king, my spouse, my light, my life. Sweet love, without whose life mine would be but death, be pleased to govern your citizens as a gracious lord. Consider even today how munificent their treatment. What worship, what honor, what splendid public duty have they at great cost paid to thee, revered king? Like us, they are but mortal and liable to frailty. Far from thy memory, my king, my sweet love, be their offenses, and for their pardon I supplicate, kneeling thus lowly on the ground. Then, after some mention of Brutus and Arthur, ancient kings of Britain, which no doubt are interpolated flourishes of good master May Destin, the queen concludes her supplication, by requesting, that the king would please to restore, to these worthy and penitent plebeians, their ancient charters and liberties. Be satisfied, dearest wife, the king answered. Loth should we be to deny thee any reasonable request of thine. Meantime ascend and sit beside me on my throne, while I speak a few words to my people. He seated the gentle queen beside him on the throne. The king then spoke, and all listened in silence, both high and low. He addressed the lord mayor. I will restore to you my royal favor, as in former days, for I duly prize the expense which you have incurred, the presents you have made me, and the prayers of the queen. Do you henceforth avoid offense to your sovereign, and disrespect to his nobles? Preserve the ancient faith, despise the new doctrines unknown to your fathers. Defend the Catholic Church, the whole Church, for there is no order of men in it that is not dedicated to the worship of God take back the key and sword, keep my peace in your city, rule its inhabitants as formerly, and be among them my representative. No further differences with the king disturbed the country during the life of Anne of Bohemia. It is probable that if the existence of this beloved queen had been spared, the calamities and crimes of Richard's future years would have been averted by her mild advice. Yet the king's extravagant generosity nothing could repress. The profusion of the royal household is severely commented upon by Walsingham and Knighton. Still, their strictures seem invidious. Nothing but partisan malice could blame such hospitality as the following in a time of famine. Though a terrible series of plagues and famine afflicted England, the king retrenched none of his diversions or expenses, he entertained every day six thousand persons most of them were indigent poor he valued himself on surpassing in magnificence all the sovereigns in europe as if he possessed an inexhaustible treasure in his kitchen alone three hundred persons were employed and the queen had a like number to attend upon her service while richard was preparing for a campaign in ireland which country had revolted from his authority His departure was delayed by a terrible bereavement. This was the loss of his beloved partner. It is supposed she died of the pestilence that was then raging throughout Europe, as her decease was heralded by an illness of but a few hours. Froissart says, speaking of the occurrences in England, June 1394, at this period the Lady Anne, Queen of England, fell sick, to the infinite distress of King Richard and all her household. Her disorder increased so rapidly that she departed this life at the Feast of Whitsuntide, 1394. The king and all who loved her were greatly afflicted at her death. King Richard was inconsolable for her loss, as they mutually loved each other, having been married young. This queen left no issue, for she never bore a child. Anna Bohemia died at her favorite palace of Sheen. The king was with her when she expired. He had never given her a rival. She appears to have possessed his whole heart, which was rent by the most acute sorrow at the sudden loss of his faithful partner, who was, in fact, his only friend. In the frenzy of his grief, Richard imprecated the bitterest curses on the place of her death, and, unable to bear the sight of the place, where he had passed his only happy hours, with this beloved and virtuous queen, he ordered the palace of Sheen to be leveled with the ground. The deep tone of Richard's grief is apparent even in the summons, sent by him to the English peers, requiring their attendants to do honor to the magnificent obsequies he had prepared for his lost consort. His letters on this occasion are in existence, and are addressed to each of his barons in this style. Very dear and faithful cousin, inasmuch as our beloved companion, the Queen, whom God has hence commanded, will be buried at Westminster on Monday, the 3rd of August next, we earnestly entreat that you, setting aside all excuses, will repair to our city of London, the Wednesday previous to the same day, bringing with you our very dear kinswoman, your consort, at the same time. We desire that you will, the preceding day, accompany the corpse of our dear consort from our manor of Sheen to Westminster, and for this we trust we may rely on you, as you desire our honor and that of our kingdom, given under our privy seal at Westminster, the tenth day of June, 1394. We gather from this document, that Anne's body was brought from Sheen in great procession, the Wednesday before the 3rd of August, attended by all the nobility of England, male and female, likewise by the citizens and authorities of London, all clothed in black, with black hoods, and on the 3rd of August, the queen was interred. Abundance of wax was sent for from Flanders, for flambeau and torches, and the illumination was so great that nothing was seen like it before, not even at the burial of the good Queen Philippa. The king would have it so, because she was the daughter of the emperor of Rome and Germany. The most memorable and interesting circumstance at the burial of Anne of Bohemia is the fact that Thomas Arundel, afterwards Archbishop of Canterbury, who preached her funeral sermon, in the course of it, greatly commended the queen for reading the holy scriptures in the vulgar tongue. Richard's grief was as long enduring as it was acute. One year elapsed, before he had devised the species of monument, he thought worthy the memory of his beloved Anne. Yet his expressions of tenderness, regarding her, pervaded his covenant with the London artificers, employed to erect this tomb. He took withal, the extraordinary step, of having his own monumental statue made to repose by that of the queen, with the hands of the effigies clasped in each other. The tomb of Anne was commenced in 1395. The indentures descriptive of its form are to be found in the federa. The marble part of the monument was consigned to the care of Stephen Lote, citizen and mason of London, and Henry Yevel, his partner. In the document alluded to above, occur these remarkable words, and also inscriptions are to be graven upon the tomb, such as will be delivered proper for it. The actual inscription is in Latin, the sentiments are tender and elegant, and the words probably composed by the king himself, as it enters into the personal and mental qualifications of Anne, like one who knew and loved her. The Latin commences, sub petra lata mana, Anna to tumulata, etc. The following is a literal translation. Under the stone lies Anna, here entombed, wedded in this world's life to the second Richard. To Christ were her meek virtues devoted, his poor she freely fed from her treasures. Strife she assuaged, and swelling feuds appeased, beauteous in form, her face surpassing fair. On July 7th day, 1394, All comfort was bereft, for through irredeemable sickness she passed away into eternal joys. Richard departed for Ireland soon after the burial of Anne, but his heart was still bleeding for the loss of his queen, and though her want of progeny was one of the principal causes of the troubles of his reign, he mourned for her with the utmost constancy of affection. Frequently when he was in his council chamber at Dublin, If anything accidentally recalled her to his thoughts, he would burst into tears, rise, and suddenly leave the room. The year of her death, says Walsingham, was notable for splendid funerals. Constance, Duchess of Lancaster, a lady of great innocency of life, died then, and her daughter-in-law, the co-heiress of Hereford, wife of Henry of Bolingbroke, and mother of his children, died in the bloom of life. She was followed to the tomb by Isabel, Duchess of York, second daughter of Pedro the Cruel, a lady noted for her over-fineness and delicacy, yet at her death, showing much penitence for her pestilent vanities. But the grief for all these deaths by no means equaled that of the king for his own Queen Anne, whom he loved even to madness. The people of England likewise deeply regretted this benignant and peace-loving queen and long hallowed her memory by the simple yet expressive appellation of Good Queen Anne. End of Section 23 End of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.